Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's a lot of cool stuff coming up at the Starlight in Waterloo over the next little while, including their annual Halloween costume party with DJs Surreal, Flash, and Penny. There's also first, second, and third cash prizes for the best costumes. You get in with a costume for five bucks. If you don't wear a costume, it's ten bucks. And that's all happening at night on Friday, October 31st. Then, on Tuesday, November 4th, Mo Kenny and Kim Churchill appear together. And on Wednesday, November 5th, DJ Qbert is in town. That's That all sounds really good. Starlight is located at 47 King Street and is uh, the affiliated Jane Bond which has been voted one of the best vegetarian restaurants in Canada, by the way, is around the corner at 005 Princess Street. You can visit starlightsocialclub.ca and janebond.ca for more info. If you enjoy the Creative Control podcast and want to support it with a monthly pledge please visit patreon.com slash creative control. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash creative control with two Ks. You can pledge $1 a month or $4, $8, $30, $50, $100 a month, whatever you want. There are gifts and incentives to pledge, but more than anything, you can keep the show going. There's no other revenue stream for this podcast. I've been doing it for my own fulfillment and to contribute something to the culture but I think it's time to see if I can generate some kind of salary from all of this work so if you appreciate creative control again please consider pledging a monthly amount all of the info you need is at patreon.com slash creative control thank you Creative Control with Vish Khanna. Things are still weird here in my house since the loss of our our dear cat suddenly, Gary, who I miss very much. But my son in particular is having, I don't want to say there are issues, but it's weird. He has turned the phrase, I miss Gary, into an imaginary female cat named Miss Gary. And has suggested that our cat, Gary, is stuck inside Miss Gary and that we need to retrieve him from her. And then yesterday, he said that he'd seen... He saw Gary's shadow. I saw Gary's shadow, he said. So on some level, it's very dark. I was going to say on some level it's nice. Um, but it's hard. This is very hard. I know eh, a lot of you have dealt with loss and uh, losing someone you see every day. And... Um, depending on how close you are. I mean, either way, it's just freaky. Someone is missing, and that's what we're going through uh, in, in our house, and it's a bit strange. Nonetheless, I'm trying to do stuff, and I am doing stuff, and but it's weird. We, I do really sincerely miss my cat. It's weird. I don't know why I keep saying it's weird. You probably can relate. Anyway, maybe. Before I tell you what's going on in this show... Uh, you heard the announcement thing at the beginning. I've started a Patreon page for the uh, podcast. It's patreon.com slash creative control. 
If you'd like to pledge a monthly amount, it could be whatever you want, uh, really, to support the show and keep the show going, then uh, please uh, feel free to do that. Again, it's patreon.com slash creative control. You can get more info about it on my website, yishkana.com or whatever. There you go. On this episode, Greg Cartwright, the legendary Greg Cartwright, is on the show from the band The Raining Sound. They are on tour right now across uh, parts of North America in support of their latest album, Shattered, which is out now on Merge Records. And Greg and I had a really cool chat, I think. We talked about lots of different stuff, and you're going to hear a new raining, a new song from Shattered by The Raining Sound on this episode, too. So, I don't know. That's all I have. I think I've said enough. Here's the episode. This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening The One I Love, My Old Lady, Double Indemnity, The 100-Year-Old Man Who Climbed Out the Window and Disappeared, Cavalry, and more. And at the E-Bar, the Melagro Band play a Halloween show on October 31st. The Bookshelf is an independently-owned culture hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. For more information about their hours, listings, blogs, and accessibility, please visit bookshelf.ca. Kazoo and CFRU 93.3 FM present the Burning Hell, Toronto's Blimp Rock, and Kitchener's Man Meets Bear in Guelph. This is a rare area appearance by the Burning Hell, who of late have been situated in such remote areas as Newfoundland and Germany. They remain one of the most awesome bands ever, so please come see them on Wednesday, October 22nd at Silence, a fully accessible venue located at 46 Essex Street in Guelph. The show is all ages and begins at 8 p.m., Look for CFRU's Raise Your Voice table and contribute to our Tuning in the Neighborhood funding drive in October. For more information, please visit kazookazoo.ca, silencesounds.ca, or cfru.ca. When it's time to kick off, because my body is mortal, but my rhymes are unkillable, looking slice of the sun with all its different syllables. Greg Cartwright is a prolific and influential musician who originally hails from Memphis, Tennessee. Over the past 20 years, Cartwright has established himself as a key and talented figure in the realms of garage rock, punk, and soul music. He has founded inspiring bands like the Compulsive Gamblers, the Oblivions, Greg Oblivion, and the Tip Tops, and worked with the Detroit Cobras, the Deadly Snakes, and Mary Weiss of the 60s chart toppers, the Shangri-Las. Near the beginning of this century, Cartwright emerged with a new R&B-influenced band called Raining Sound, and this past summer they released their sixth proper studio album. It's a love and heartbreak-soaked scorcher called Shattered. It's out now via Merge Records and has prompted Raining Sound to do some touring, including stops at Montreal's Bar La Ritz PDB on October 24th and Toronto's Horseshoe Tavern on October 25th. Here now to discuss some of these things further is Raining Sound's leader, Greg Cartwright. Hi, Greg. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well. Where Where in the world are you, Greg? Where in the world am I? That's correct. I, I just want to know geographically where you are. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. That's where I've been living for the last 10 years. Yeah, what brought you to Asheville? Well, um, 
me and my wife started looking around. Uh, we were thinking it might be, you know, nice to move. And also, we had just had our, our daughter, uh, Ruby. And my wife's mother and father both lived here in Asheville. Um, and we had visited here several times. And uh, we just thought, well, maybe that's where we'll go. And uh, it turned out there was a job offer here for her. Mm-hmm. So it just made it made it that much easier to go ahead and do it. Oh, okay, that's cool. And and how far are you from your own family? Well, my folks are still in Memphis, and that's about a nine-hour drive. Oh, okay. So you're <laughs> you did the thing where you moved closer to one of your parents, exactly, <laughs> to, at the expense of um, the other set of parents. Yeah, my my wife's parents, and it's uh. The funny thing is, is uh, I, you know, I'm, I lived in, in Memphis, Tennessee, but it's all the way in the southwest corner of the state. Where we live in Asheville is actually just over the border of the eastern side of Tennessee. So the only thing in between us is Tennessee, but it's a long state. Right. Uh, all right. Well, well, that's just the way things go. I, I know. I know what you're going through. Well, I'm close to my parents. I mean, I'm geographically. I don't know that I'm actually close with them. But I'm geographically closer to my parents than my wife's parents are, or than my wife is to her parents. Is that a, is that a bone of contention? <laughs> well, we were looking at it. We're looking at moving across the country. Every, every once in a while, we talk about it. We haven't done anything serious about it. She's her family's in Alberta. We're not. We're, I'm calling you from Ontario. We live in Ontario, so it's far. It's a plane trip. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. Anyway, so we got to. Yeah, I, I don't know. Did you have tension, or was it just like, yeah, we'll go? You, did you even put up a fight? No, not at all. Um, I'd lived in Memphis most of my life. I mean, I was born there, raised there, and I lived there until ninety or ninety-one. At which point, I moved up to New York, um, and I was back and forth between Memphis and New York for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I was just back in Memphis full time again until we made the move up here. So, I, you know, I, I'd i been in Memphis for a long, long time, and it just felt like it might be, you know, good to, to mix it up a little bit. So I was actually, I was pretty pro-move. Yeah, you, you needed a change of scenery at that point anyway. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. Sometimes I think the same thing. I've been this, I, I'm calling you from Guelph, Ontario, and... uh I've lived here for all, really on and off for 18 years, and uh, well, that, that's that's quite a stretch. Yeah, it's quite a stretch, and I didn't, I wasn't raised here, uh, but I right. So, but you you probably feel like a local at this point, right? I am a local, and there's lots of perks. You know, you go to the store, and they're like, "Vish," and they give you a thing. You know, they give you something <laughs> for nothing, and you're like, "Oh, I, God, if I lived in Edmonton, no one's going to give me anything." Exactly. You sometimes you got to move. <laughs> sometimes you got to move, but you lose all the perks. <laughs> Unless I want to double, yeah. I could go to like I could have a thing where I have perks in two cities. I never thought of that. Uh, dual citizenship. Yeah, yeah I like that idea. that's a good yeah. idea. Yeah, I gotta. All right, I'm gonna take you take you as an inspiration here. I might actually take you up on this and and move my whole family <laughs> across the country. Yeah. Now I want to ask you about the uh, version of Raining Sound that made uh, Shattered. Uh, as I understand it, the version of this band came together, maybe not last minute, but sort of at the last minute. Right? Is that right? It did. Uh, the band's been together with this lineup for a little over two years now. But when we first got together, I was going to work on a, an EP, and I was doing that in Nashville um, at Dan Auerbach's studio that he, that he has there. He was going to produce it. And I kind of did some preliminary work talking to various bass players and drummers around Nashville to try to line up a rhythm section. And... Um, kind of work it all out and I figured whatever I didn't whatever live musicians I couldn't get I could do the parts myself as overdubs but then um, at the last minute my drummer got an offer to to work on a, a Broadway musical the hmm. guy I had tapped to do it so that didn't work out the bass player who I had considered having to do it something popped up for him so literally like at the last minute I was sitting in Nashville and didn't have a rhythm section, and I kind of needed to get to work on this record. So we had toured with the Rainy Sound in the past. We had toured with this band, the Javons, and our keyboard player, Dave Amels, uh, did double duty in in our band and and the Javons. 
because um, he's friends with those guys. And through Dave, I got to be friends with him. And that's how they wound up opening a tour for us uh, when we did a, a parting gifts tour, which was mm-hmm. another side project band I did. But, you know, being that I'd seen them play, I got to know them pretty well. I thought, well, these guys are tight players. Um, I could probably call Mikey Pose, the drummer, and see if he might want to fly down and do this, these recordings. He did. And I said, okay, well, maybe the bass player wants to come and do it as well. And so I asked Benny, and he said, yeah. And I said, well, <laughs> let's just bring Mike to guitar player to And we'll just have everybody, because Dave Amel, my keyboard player, was already in on it. He was already coming down. Yeah, Mikey, um, Mikey was in New York, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, in fact, everybody's in New York, um, except Dave, who's in New Jersey, and then I'm here in North Carolina. So they all live pretty close to each other com- comparatively, and then I'm... I'm I'm out here by myself in North Carolina. Right. But so we we did that. Um, we uh, finished up the EP, and I hadn't really planned to tour, you know, really. But, you know, now it seemed like, you know, these guys really rounded me out pretty well, and and it felt really good. And so I said, well, do you guys want to go out and do some shows as a rainy time? They said, yeah, we, we've got nothing booked for our, our band right now. You know, we'd be happy to do it. So we did that, and that just kind of solidified into the lineup that is what it is now. Okay, and so you've got, I was going to, my follow-up question was going to be, you've been in a few bands, you know, you've had members that come and go, and I wondered if that was good for your process in some way to to have kind of a fluid uh, lineup, but it sounds like it's a matter of circumstance, like it's not something you'd prefer, you'd prefer to have a real band. Yeah, I prefer to have just the same players um, that are on the record, but um, everybody has commitments, life changes, you know, things that happen. People have kids, people get married, people take job, you know, like get a, get a great job that doesn't allow for, you know, a touring schedule and things like that. So, you know, lots of things happen that, that, uh, cause lineup changes. And yeah, I would love if you didn't have to have that too frequently, but, but on some level it is good to switch the dynamic of of the band, you know, whether it's the same band that changes lineup several times or if you're you've been in several different bands and you know that uh, every time you're you connect different people together you get a, a the end result is a different dynamic altogether. Right. And that's to me that's that's a positive thing because it it kind of it prods you to think about writing things for a different kind of bass player or a different kind of drummer. Um, because when you play with them, you start to think about melodies and 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 rhythms very differently because because they play differently. So yeah. to me, that it it kind of is a good thing as well. So would this have been the outfit that would have played at Sled Island in Calgary? Because I saw that show and I really enjoyed it. Um, but I yeah, don't... it is it's same same group. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that's it's a really great band. It's uh, I, I can understand why you'd prefer to hang you know hang on to them. Yeah, absolutely. And that actually that was right. We had just. We hadn't been together too long at that point, and now we've been playing together for a couple of years now, so it's it's even they're even better. Oh, all right, cool. You mentioned um, Dan Auerbach uh, of the Black uh, the Black Keys there, and um, I feel like his he, he's somewhat of a divisive or controversial figure in some senses. Like people question his his garage rock bona fides sometimes, but you've come to know him. You respect his work. You respect him. I do. Um, I especially respect Dan as a producer. Um, I think if you look at the Black Keys, you know, um, I think their earlier records, which were kind of like really fuzzy um, blues rock records that kind of had a, like, you know, the the term garage used to be such a wide net, you know, a lot of things that were really very different all fell under that because mainly what people meant when they said garage was bad recording, you know, like, (laughs) like anything that sounded lo-fi, you know, was garage. Um, and, and so, you know, they definitely qualify, but like in that sense, I don't think they were ever really a garage band, um, because they were more into, um, kind of like these drone groove riffs and things that you know, which, to me were much more of like a came out of the a, a blues tradition 
Um, and that was kind of his thing. And he found a way, or, or both of you know, the Black Keys have found a way to make that work in a pop way with, you know, bringing in different producers and, and turning that into something that could actually be a billboard hit, which to me is kind of amazing. Um, but he, that's not the only thing Dan likes. Dan likes all kinds of music. Dan likes all kinds of pop music, garage stuff, 60s stuff, beat, soul. Um, and that was the one thing that impressed me when I got to know him is that he's got really varied tastes and he's, he's genuinely excited on, from a producer standpoint of looking at all these different things and seeing how you can apply them to a modern recording. Um, and so to me, that was just like, he's the only producer I've ever had on a record. Every other record I've produced myself and working with him was really fun. Okay. Um, and so it really kind of opened me up to the idea of having outside producers sometimes because it worked so well. So you think that maybe some of the criticism or maybe the criticism lobbed at him is stemming from some resentment uh, just because he's been quite successful? I don't I don't know. I mean, you'd have to ask somebody who resented him. I don't resent <laughs> him at all. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I think that, you know, it's some of it's kind of silly because I think maybe it's, it's something where people are saying, oh, that's not really garage, that's pop music. Well, I don't think Dan would argue. You know, I think it's, yeah. I think he's trying to make, I think he's trying to make pop music. Now, if you, you know, if you don't like that, then, you know, you just don't like it. And I can't, I can't argue with that. You know, everybody has their own right to their own taste and, you know, what they want to do. But it's like, if you, even if you don't like the Black Keys, even if you don't like that, you know, I think people should give Dan a, a fair shake as a producer and listen to some of the other things that he's produced that don't really sound like the Black Keys at all to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the, um, the Dr. John album he did a couple of years ago. Like that was the way I wanted a Dr. John album to sound for like 10 years and what I didn't get it, you know. Yeah. Like he kept, he would make recordings ever, ever so often, but it was never like the style that I really liked that he was doing in the sixties and, and Dan did like a fantastic job of like letting him do what he does now, but like bringing it back to those kind of grooves and that album was fantastic. So nice. All right. Well, I, I, I appreciate your insight on that. Cause, uh, as I say, I have no opinion whatsoever, but I, I have heard this. Uh, it, it just sounds like backlash talk and I, maybe it's just noise. So I appreciate uh, your perspective on it. Now, listening to shattered, I hear a lot of, you know, hard bitten love songs. They seem to be about, Loss, regret, um, dread, anger, hope. I'm just curious if you can talk about what inspired this batch of songs. Well, what really inspires me to write songs, a lot of it happened so long ago. You know, it's not what inspires me to write songs so much as as it is things that happened years ago that I've had a lot of time to chew on. Mm -hmm. Those Those kind of things I can write about and I can I can expound on them, you know, really well because I've thought about them for a long time. <laughs> um, so it's always times, you know, people will say, ah, oh, that guy, you know, is in that band and he just broke up with his girlfriend. Now he's going to have some great songs on the next record because he's just had a heartache. Well, it's like, no, generally, like, songs you write right after something like that are just really angry. Right. Um, it's It's five, six, seven, eight years down the road when you get some great heartache out of it because then you you're not just mad at the other person anymore you start to realize what you did to to really make your house of cards fall down and that's when you once you really reflected on something long enough to see what the truth of it is that's that's when you can write a great song huh that's interesting so time what is it tragedy plus time equals great songs Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 for me, I, for me, I guess it may be different for different people. But for me, it's for me, it's to, it's it's hard to explain anything in a sense that would sound true in a song, unless I've had a little time to consider how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. I think part of your work fits into a, a kind of, um, and I'm not trying to suggest that it's conventional, but it does fit into a classic romanticized notion of what rock and roll songs can be. Do you, do you yourself have like a romantic relationship with rock and roll? Oh, absolutely. These people that write songs about 
I mean, you're covering subject because it's a tricky thing at this point in our lives to be writing meaningful love songs. And you, I think, are drawing from a well and a and a sort of a mindset and approach that is sort of timeless. And I, I'm curious if that's purposeful on your end. Like, do you feel like do you have more of a connection to things from decades ago than you do now? I I do because well, I do because I I grew up in Memphis and I and uh, there's a lot of great records from there that I that I really connect to, um, and a lot of them um, have a very traditional way of the way the song structure works, like you know the whole like first chorus, first chorus bridge, first chorus, you know, a solo in there somewhere if it's not too long, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, so like <clears throat> song structure for me. And just the overall, the way I write is definitely based in in Memphis music. Um, and I think a lot of those forms are kind of timeless. Um, I'm not doing it so much in a in a calculated way. It's just the way that, like, those are the records I grew up with, and so it's the most natural way for me to express myself. But when some people would hear Shattered, they would describe the overall vibe as something of a throwback. And I'm curious how a term like that makes you feel about your work. I, well, (laughs) you know, I guess I just have to roll with whatever people think. I mean, if they think it, then for them it's true. I mean, for me, I don't listen to a lot of modern music, so... It would almost be weirder if I tried to write something that sounded ultra modern, because to me that would be really. If I did, if I did it, it, it probably wouldn't be very sincere, or I can't imagine that it would sound very sincere because I don't have any. I have very little knowledge about modern music, and how it works, and you know I'm really fascinated sometimes when I'm listening to the radio or I'll be on tour and I hear something in a bar or whatever, and I just think. Wow, this is really interesting, and I could never do it. I just don't, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even know where to begin, which is great because I don't have to do it. Somebody else is already doing it. Are there any artists utilizing you know more contemporary production or sounds that uh, is there anyone that appeals to you or any styles that appeal to you? Um, I don't live I don't listen to enough of it to know. Hmm. Like maybe maybe if it was more of my musical diet, then I might have an opinion on it but I just don't listen to enough of it to know right like I say it's pretty when I come in contact with it it's, it's so random to be in a restaurant or a bar or somewhere or in somebody's car yeah. um, and <clears throat> it's kind of fascinating to me um, because I don't hear it every day it's not what I listen to around the house and and also I I collect records I have collected them for a long time and I and I DJ a couple nights out of the week like one night I do R&B and kind of 60s and 50s rock stuff. I have another night where I do just country records. And so much of my time is spent obsessing over those records and the way that they sound and finding more of them that I really like or kind of finding little niches in in each of the genres where it's like, oh, this is really cool. I want to find another record that sounds like this record. Um, And it never occurs to me, I guess, to, to look at the modern landscape to find those kind of records. But I just don't think, you know, I don't think they exist. So I've just got to look, I got to look at thrift stores and, and, you know, use record shops and places like that for the kind of records that I'm, that I'm, that are not just the kind of records that inspire me, but on some level, they're also um, useful to me in a press and in a professional sense, because I can use them to DJ with. But is there, there is a, I don't know if it's a school of thought, but there are people who feel like if something is older, older, or old, right? Ancient, it automatically has more weight than something new. Do you subscribe to that? Not at all. So when you're There's plenty when... of old bad, plenty of old bad records, <laughs> mountains, mountains of them. I mean, that's like the one thing you you learn when if you if you collect records and and you're the, a music fanatic is that you know, and you walk into a shop and you see you know six hundred records. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know that only you only want like 10 of them. And you've got to dig through all the other ones to find those 10 that you want. You know, mm-hmm. 10 is like if you're lucky, right? Like, I mean, so, you know, and when I used to own, I used to own a record store when I lived in Memphis, and people would bring me, um, you know, like a kind of pop 78s from the 30s and stuff. And it's like, uh, in the 40s, like, they're, you know, they'd be like, oh, these records are really old. And I'm, yeah, they're really old, but. Nobody wants them either. You know, they're they're they're, they're bad. They're bad records. <laughs> so yeah, no, old, old does not equal good. Okay, so there's still you have to be discerning about the old stuff as much as you do the new. Absolutely, yeah. I just know less about the new. Right. Okay. You ended up making this album as we discussed earlier at the Daptone Studios in, in uh, Brooklyn, um, which uh, is known for. Producing certain sounds with certain artists, that you know Sharon Jones, uh, generally I believe, still makes her records there. Uh, Charles Bradley has made a record or two there. Um, can you tell folks more about this facility and, I guess, how it compares to other studios you've worked in? It was a great studio. Um, the engineer Wayne has uh, been working there for a while, and uh, he's kind of the de facto engineer. Um, I think when they're doing, when they're cutting Daptone bands, um, a lot of the times um, they'll have, you know, Gabe, who owns Daptone, along with Neil, they'll be the engineers and they'll be the people there that are that are working on it. But it's because they're working on the product for their label. Um, and it is a closed private studio. It's not really a studio you can just call up and say, I want to book a week or whatever. It's oh. You have to have an in or, or be somehow connected to that family of people to, you know, to be able to ask and, and see if it's something that, you know, if, if, if they would be into letting you use the room. Because it's really just a private facility for doing their, their own work. Oh, I see. So um, it's a rare privilege for you to get to use it then. It really was. Uh, and we really appreciated it because um, Mikey, the drummer, our drummer, actually works there. Um, he's, uh, he's on staff there. And, and uh, so that was kind of our connection. And in comparison to other records you made or other places you've made them in, um, can you kind of specify what what made it special or, or, or you know the final product? Like, do you do you yourself say like? Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, they have um, the room is not very big, um, so you know there's not there's not a, it's not a big space, but small rooms sound can, can sound really great. But a lot of it is just the sound of the room itself plus having a really great engineer who's got a great set of ears and also an engineer who's willing to use, you know, we because the, the tape machine they have there, it's just eight tracks. So, you know, mo- most people who are doing even analog tape recording are working with at least a 24 channel machine. So this is, you know, drastically less channels to work with. Right. So, so you have to be, you have to be really mindful going in on what you need to complete the song because you can't just go in and go, oh, we'll just drop ten mics on the drums. We'll put one on the tom and one on the floor and one on the kick. It's like no, because then you you wouldn't even have any tracks left to record the rest of the song. <laughs> so, so he has to be really artful in the way that, um, and and really kind of economical in the sense that, you know. A, a couple of mics has to has to cover the drums. That's got to be it. So you can't just close mic everything. You actually have to move back and try to get the, the mic to catch the whole drum set, which means you could be moving the mic around for a while before you ever start recording. Hmm. But once you do, 
well, then you're golden. For for You don't have to, like, keep going around, like, when you go to mix, you don't have to, like, oh, we need more floor time on this one and more rack on that one and, and do all this kind of, like, mixing afterwards, like, trying to figure it out. If you get it right on the front and you spend a little time with mic placement, you know, you can you can it can make your your mixing session much easier. And uh that was something that Wayne knew how to do expertly, really really well. Okay. And and the end result is do you hear the the new record is having a like the daptone sound per se? Um I don't know. Um I I guess like yeah, the the recording technique is there. I think I think they would mix it probably, you know, if it was something that Gabe had worked on, he would probably mix it completely differently. Mm-hmm. But um, I mixed it, so, you know, it sounds like what I think it should sound like. <laughs> All right, no, that's cool. Uh, speaking of uh, things that you enjoy the sound of, can you can we delve back a little bit and talk about what first got you into music as a fan, as a player? Yeah. Um, my dad was a record collector, Um we always had tons of records at the house. Um, uh, spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house where my dad, his two brothers, and his older sister um, had grown up and they all graduated in the in the mid to late 60s and had left all of a lot of their records from when they were kids there at her house. So everywhere I went, everywhere that I was, like on a regular basis when I was a kid, there was a pile of records there for me to listen to. And that pretty much... Uh, got me started down the, the road to, you know, collecting records and, and being kind of obsessive about music. Um, then when I was about 12 or 13, I think 13, I got my first guitar. Um, not long after that, you know, I was trying to put little bands together and stuff. Um, Did you have, were, there, were Jack, there were there a lot of takers at 12 and 13? Yeah, there were other, there were other kids that were, you know, that were already really into it by seventh grade, you know, most, most kids I think have discovered rock and roll. Yeah. Um, you know, and then by, by 14, 15, you're just, you know, you're either passive or you're already head over heels into it, you know? Yeah. And so when around the 1990, you were what, like 18, something like that, 18, 19. Yep. And, and so that's when, did you have bands we would have heard of prior to uh, your your first bands that we like? You, you're kind of known for playing in the Oblivions and and um, <clears throat> the Compulsive yeah, Gamblers. The Oblivions, yeah, before the Oblivions was the Compulsive Gamblers. Before that was the band that Jack and I had called the Painkillers. Uh, before that, um, just handfuls of of band, lots of bands through high school and stuff, but nothing would know of right so you were in you were in bands all throughout high school essentially if you started at 12 or 13 you were pretty much playing in bands from throughout all high school yeah pretty much i mean it took me a while to find a drummer um and then that drummer continued to play with me in bands even up after high school um and yeah um you know i was i was i was ready to play anytime i could find somebody to play with me I want to ask about the the 1990s uh, in a second, but can you talk a little bit about what the landscape was like for you as someone who was just starting to really play publicly, like, you know, start making records and distributing them and all that stuff around that time, around the early 90s? What was it like at that point to, to make kind of underground rock music? It was great. Um, and in Memphis, it was, it was really, really great. There were um, a lot of people who were, you know, five to ten years older than me that I hooked up with at uh, this this bar we had in Memphis called the the Antenna, which had previously been the Well. And there were a lot of people still hanging out on the scene that are, that were um, playing bands in the late 70s and the early 80s who were still playing bands who kind of hit me to uh, a lot of music that I didn't know about or hadn't heard of. Um, and so that was just a great time to meet the guard that had come before me. Um, people who were who were there for the first wave of punk and were still playing rock music um, and kind of meeting people like that, hanging out with them and, and like starting my own bands and playing uh, beer busts and all this stuff at these, these, uh, the antenna and like a couple other little bars that were around. 
it was a really great time. There was not a lot of people at these shows. <laughs> you know, I have to stress, it was like, you know, if you got 50 people, you were psyched, you know. Like, yeah. So it was a pretty small rock and roll scene. Um, but it was maybe better that way because I didn't feel like, um, I didn't feel any kind of anticipation from the people that would come to the shows and that would come to that bar for me to do anything that was commercially viable or to um, to kind of grow as an artist to become this kind of in, into like making, making something that was very commercial. Like for the most part, people just did not care. Um, and I think that was a good thing at the end of the day because I didn't, you know, right around that time was when grunge came and that was so far away from what people were doing in Memphis that, and there was, there was, I saw no indication that anybody in my sphere wanted to have anything to do with that. Like I wasn't, I was never even tempted to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, so, you know, it was kind of an, it was kind of a weird insular thing, um, which it was kind of a bubble. So it kind of, but that bubble kind of allowed me to figure out what I wanted to do without, without being kind of um, influenced by all these other weird things, like if I'd been living in Seattle or L.A. or New York, or what, where there's all these kind of really vibrant scenes with all this stuff going on and everybody kind of trying to jump everybody else's train. Mm-hmm. Like, that wasn't, really good. that wasn't really going on there. So it kind of allowed me to, to kind of find my sound maybe a little more naturally. And so we're we're talking about the late 80s, early 90s at this point still, right? Yes. Now, in some senses, you came of age publicly throughout the rest of the 90s. And I, I know some artists who had a similar trajectory have varied perspectives on the experience because of how the underground was embraced by the mainstream. Like, how would you describe the rest of that decade for yourself as a working musician, as an, as an artist? Um, well, I, I found that just the more we toured, the, the bigger the audiences were. And it felt like, even though we were doing all this stuff on small labels, um, independent labels, um, the distribution was there to get us into mom and pop stores. And um, our reputation as a live band seemed to be growing. And, you know, with the Oblivions and then with the, then with the raining sound, um, with the Gamblers, we never did a whole lot of touring. Um and for me, like, that was just, I had never anticipated anything more than that. For me, that was what I thought being in a band was, was you made records, you got to make cool records, and you got to travel and um, and find your audience. And the more you, you found them and they found you, the shows got bigger and bigger. You know, it was just kind of a natural thing. Um, so, you know, that's that was my take on it. I know that there was... There was other stuff going on with, um, with you know, people who were um, finding their way into chart success or kind of, um, you know, the major labels were trying to kind of co-opt this or that um, subgenre or looking for the next big thing that was going to save the major labels from themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never really, I didn't pay much attention because I didn't see that as my trajectory or anything that I was interested in. I also didn't think that what I was doing could ever be, could re- could ever really be like a billboard chart record because, um, because you have to produce, you need a particular kind of producer to make those kinds of records. Yeah. Um, because it's a, it's a very homogenized thing at this point. And so since I'm not, interested i don't i haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it was there so at one point and this i'm I'm hearkening back to a day in your life uh as we talk about this sort of how to traverse the underground mainstream you know barrier or these worlds there was a day in your life where you were on late night with conan o'brien right with uh with mary weiss uh, of the shangri-las what was that experience like coming from where you're coming from what was that like? Because I imagine that was that that must be an anomaly on some level in your in your work to have been on a, a, a network TV show. Absolutely, um, I had never 
dreamed that I would be. Um, and and to some degree, you know, I don't know if, if I ever will be again, but I know that that was mainly due to Mary Weiss. Yeah. And and it was just a thrill for me to play with her, to write songs with her, to get to hang out, get to know her. Um, so playing on TV with her was just like the icing on the cake. It was, <laughs> it was fantastic. And but it was it was likely kind of weird being on TV and being in those situations is always a little weird, isn't it? It's very weird, and it's it's kind of uh, numbing. Like it's it's you step out there and you kind of do this thing, and you want to act naturally, but you're you're hyper aware of the fact that there's like five cameras on you, you know. So yeah. Uh, we were right as we were announced, and they were like, the, you know, Mary Weiss in the Rainy Town, and uh, like I was standing on the stage, and at that point. Uh, Lance, my drummer, like uh, he kind of whispered, talked to me. He said, uh, "How does the song go?" Like <laughs> his brain is just totally frozen, you know. <laughs> like, and I just kind of hummed a little bit. Over. He's like, "Okay, I got it, I got it." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a little. There's a, there's there's part of that that's kind of terrifying for sure. Right. So we were talking about the '90s and and in your experience of of kind of essentially ignoring all of the industry whatever like just the, the the nonsense in some ways but how do you feel about making and, and manufacturing music now versus then uh, do you feel like things are any better now or are you still kind of doing your own thing and oblivious to how most things uh, work i'm mostly still just kind of interested in and and seeing what i feel like doing at the moment um and just making records the same way as i've always made records yeah my my perspective on on making records really hasn't changed at all. Mm. Um, I just, you know, I just love to make music, and sometimes I feel like making different kinds of music. And I'm lucky. I consider myself very lucky to have found an audience that accepts all the different kinds of records that I've made, and to happily give every new thing that I make a chance. Um, and I couldn't really ask for anything more than that. I mean, that's, that's like, I think about how many artists that are out there, like, like I mentioned, like I'm in a, I'm a record collector. I come across records all the time, little private press things. And, and I think, man, this guy could have been huge. Just never found his audience, you know? Yeah. And, you know, maybe he made another record. Maybe he didn't because, you know, if, if at some point you don't connect with the people um, that are meant to hear your music, then it makes it, you know, very difficult to to move forward, and and I feel like you're just throwing your money away chasing something. Right. So so I'm very lucky in that sense that I, you know, I found them. I was so young when I when I fell in with great people to play in bands with, and you know, so I've had a long time to kind of develop that audience and make records for them. And I just feel, I mean, I and this is going to sound super corny, but I just feel super lucky to have that because. I'm in my 40s now. Um, I could be working a day job. I could be working at a grocery store, but instead, I still get to do this. Yeah, so I'm super lucky. No, and and I, if I might say, I think it's well deserved. And, and we we've mentioned throughout this conversation that you've been on small labels, uh, and we also mentioned earlier that you relocated to North Carolina. You're on Merge Records now, which is not a tiny label. On some level, it is just not very tiny. Yeah, it's it's um uh, it's not a major, but it's um, it's not a, a small independent. It's definitely not. Um, it's ar- know, it's arguably just kind of arguably the most in- one of the most successful independent labels I think in, in in certainly in the United States. I think so too. I think they the key to that success is is that they did not sign harmful um, deals with labels in the '90s. Like we were talking about the '90s earlier. One thing that happened was a lot of labels. Um, signs uh distribution deals to come to become satellite labels basically of larger labels right um and and they most of those labels bit the dust um you know they saw it as an opportunity to grow and get bigger but really they just got franchised and then swallowed right and now a lot of those names exist only as imprints um which the their parent company can do as they see fit with to place on whatever artist he's interested in, in having that 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 imprint be on their record or whatever. You know, so it's like they really 
they really took the long haul view of things of like, no, this is our label and we, we, we know how we want to do it and we're going to continue to do it our way. And I think then they grew at a natural pace and that's why they're the label they are now. So they they obviously are a really comfortable fit for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm glad you're on Merge. I, I want to ask you before we wrap up here, Greg, what's what's next for you beyond this uh, batch of shows with, raining, with the Raining Sound? What else do you have coming up? Um, I have a couple Oblivion shows coming up, and also I've got to get to work on another Parting Gifts record here soon, and... Um, I've got a couple other, one or two other little projects I can't really talk about yet because I don't know what's going to happen with them. But the main thing is after this, get to work on another Parting Gifts record and to start getting material together for another Raining Sound record. Okay. And the Oblivion shows are where? Um, I think right now all the dates aren't confirmed. We're looking at a couple of other things, but I think we're talking about doing Chicago and New Year's Eve. Oh, okay. Nothing in nothing in Canada per se. Not yet, but we're up your way, so you never know. Okay, it would be cool. It just I'm just saying, if you want to drop it, us drop us a great. line, yeah, we'd like to have you up here. Nope. We'd like to see that thing. Have the Oblivions been in Canada since the various reunions? I'm trying to think if we've done anything with the reunion, at, like while we were doing the reunions. I don't think so. Not. Not that I recall, because like, I've been up there several times with the raining sound over the last few years, but I don't think when we were doing the Oblivion screens, I don't think we did anything in Canada yet. Right, so we're we're overdue. You're overdue. Okay, just just putting that out there. Now, you did did you not just produce an <laughs> album? Did you not produce an album for last year's Men? Um, yeah, you know what? Um, I did. They came up and uh, they they brought a friend who brought some recording gear and he kind of engineered it and we we worked on a, a record for them. We got all the basic tracks and some of the vocals done and then they took it back to Chapel Hill, Carborough area where they're from and I think finished the overdubs and mixed it there. Oh, okay. So you had. So a I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to take full production credit at all. I was there for directing and producing the recordings, but I was not there to mix it or anything. I see. Okay. You're, you're sort of stepping back. You're stepping back and letting them get the credit they deserve. Well, it, exactly. It's their show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and these new Raining Sound songs that you mentioned, or are you at a point where they're new songs, or are you saying you need to prepare for the next uh, record? Well, I have a few new songs, and I'm not, because I have a couple projects on the back burner with Parting Gifts and the Raining Sound. I haven't sifted out which song goes where yet. So so I just kind of like stockpile things until I have enough, and then I try to figure out what the best fit is for each song. And are you kind of road testing these songs with the raining sound just to see if they fit? No. Right now, you know, like I say, I just want to get enough of them together because when we're out on the road, there's we want to try to play as much as we can of the new album, but also we want to try to bring as many of the songs from the back catalog into the set and be able to switch them out regularly. So there's there's so much material right now to focus on when it comes to touring. It's a little too volatile to try to throw things in that people don't know that well. Okay. Right. With the band the band or the audience. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well it sounds it sounds good. I, I I'm looking forward to more music. Once again the excellent new Raining Sound album is called Shattered it's out now via Merge Records, and you, you can see the band live in the United States and Canada in October, including stops at Montreal's Bar La Ritz PDB, formerly Il Matur, on October 24th, and Toronto's Horseshoe Tavern on October 25th. Uh, for more information, please visit MergeRecords.com. Uh, Greg, before I let you go, is there a song from the new uh, Raining Sound album that we can play for folks? Yeah, let's see. What would be a good song? Uh, Never Coming Home. Never coming home. Now, why did that come to mind? Because you're going on tour? Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes the road feels like you're never coming home. <laughs> Seems like an appropriate enough pick. All right, this is Never Coming Home. Uh, Greg uh, Cartwright, a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, best of luck with everything. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Where you are 
face at all There's no trace of your perfume in my room As I lie here and think of you All the stains you polish cannot change Upon each broken part of my heart Is the wear and tear of many years It seems much later than before And I'm still waiting on a long-distance call That never comes You meant it when you said it Yes, you meant it when you said it You were leaving and Thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at cfru.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.